Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. I would indeed. Hello, everybody. It's your Horror Vanguard for the week. Uh, welcome, welcome. The, the nights are drawing in. The weather is getting colder. It's it's time to get cozy. It's time to it's time to hunker down and stock up on bear traps because <laughs> that's that's the tis the season, baby. Tis the season. See, see, that's that's their problem. They needed vampire traps. They just they just bought the wrong ones. I don't you hate that when when, you, when you're like, oh, I gotta run down the hardware store, and so they're out of the bear traps. <laughs> And so you go to the I Am Legend aisle, uh, <laughs> and there, along with like all of the virology equipment, someone has cleaned them out of like vampire traps. It is, it is, it is really tedious, especially you know, like we just got done with Black Friday and Cyber Monday here in the states, like the big, big shopping holidays, and all the stores are cleaned out of all of the vampire hunting gear. That stuff is the first to go. It really is. And like nobody tells you that the problem of trying to survive a vampire attack on your town is you end up having to deal with scalpers so much. <laughs> Just a guy outside of like a vampire orgy, like trying to scalp vampire hunting gear the way you would Taylor Swift. Yeah, ex- exactly. Like some knockoff <laughs> kicks. <laughs> like, oh, they just fell off the back of the van. You're like, oh, fine. How much? <laughs> no, no, I'm actually a huge Swifty. I'm selling these vampire steaks because me and my friends got sick and we can't go. I'm not reselling <laughs> these tickets at markup. <laughs> uh, yes, oh, that's dear. Right. We oh, are dear. Talking, we're talking about vampire films. We're talking about a... Uh, a really, really solid early 2000s vampire movie. But before that, there is something important that we have to bring up. Yes, yes. Uh, listeners, uh, you know that we are not a timely news program here at Horror Vanguard. Uh, sometimes our episodes re- are recorded months in advance. Other times we record them the day we upload them. It's a bit it's a bit chaotic over here in the crypt sometimes. Uh, so we're not, we don't always do like news coverage and announcements and things like that. There are plenty of other left programs where you can get that stuff. But we did want to say that we we support the people of Palestine. Uh, I find what is happening to be atrocious and nothing short of genocide. And you know whether you're writing your representatives or donating to some mutual aid effort, I highly encourage everyone out there in listener land uh, to support the good people of Palestine and their struggle for freedom. Cosine, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And now, with that said, uh, let's go talk about vamp- vampires. Uh, there is there is literally no tr- the tr- yeah. There's no uh, way. There's of no doing transition this. here. There's no way of like our segues are legendarily good, but there's no way of making this seem slick. No, yeah, we we, we don't. You, usually, the tone here is just kind of like wall to wall bonkers because we're talking about horror movies. But like every now and then, when we have to talk about something real. It's just these jarring changes of tone. So here's one of those. This will uh, not be a repeat of El Conde, by the way. Unfortunately, we're not going to be debating vampires for 50 minutes and then maybe talk about the movie in the last 10. No, it's um, it's going to be a lot more low-key. This is not going to be one of those episodes where you'll get to listen to me realize in real time I'm very wrong about something. <laughs> or or listen to me in real time. Slowly, slowly just try to like dig myself out of a hole I've dug myself into. Um, instead... 
instead we're talking about we're talking about the mid the the mid to the early to mid 2000s we're talking about uh comic books we're talking about uh geopolitics and we're talking about Josh Hartnett again we're talking about Josh Hartnett um <laughs> with with that in mind um ash my dear friend would you mind explaining to 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 you to me to the entire population of the town formerly known as Barrow what 2007's 30 Days of Night is all about. Before we turn our attention to the frozen oil fields of Alaska, I think it's important to turn our attention much further south, Ecuador. In the 90s, the people of Ecuador began a series of legal proceedings that, in some manner, still continue today. The case is filed against Chevron by the indigenous peoples living in the rainforests of Ecuador. The Ecuadorian rainforest has been shredded, boiled, and poisoned by companies like Chevron. We can make similar statements about adjacent companies all across the world. The outcome of that court case is likewise too familiar. Decades of corporate litigation result in an amorphous payout after all the damage is done. And a payout is not punishment if you have infinite money. Again, we don't need to look to locations that, from the perspective of someone living in a major American city, appear to be remote. There is a coal power plant, a chemical manufacturer, or another robber baron poisoning your life just as happened to the Ecuadorian children. There might not be an oil well in your backyard, but there could be a pipeline, a train carrying petrochemicals, or a processing plant. Even in the most idyllic landscapes, we're still breathing the same corrosive air. In 30 Days of Night, petrochemical production is the backdrop to a scene of grisly horror. Why does this feel like it could be true of any setting, any peoples, any condition over the last hundred or so years? Again, Fines and fees are non-punishments for companies this large. The decks just get shuffled and money appears and disappears as needed. However, when we turn our attention to the corporate vampires that run these oil-spilling machines, a new direction might emerge. Vampires can be driven out, their power dismantled. Whether you're in Ecuador, Aberdeen, or Anchorage, there is a path to a future not slicked with the sickening grease of oil. Join us as we discuss 30 Days of Night. Uh, this is which occurs to me all over my notes I wrote as 300 days of night uh, that's I mean really that's like that's the sequel that they never got to make <laughs> <laughs> you know that's it that's that's just sort of the implications of that uh, Simpsons episode where mr. burns blocks out the sun <laughs> oh ooh, so I'm sure somebody's written this before but like a dark earth fiction with vampires yeah. Like the, the, do, do, the, do the classic setup where a rogue planetoids gravity tears the earth away from the sun ooh, ooh okay copyright if no one's done that before boom trademark copyright whatever is legally applicable here <laughs> I am mailing that to myself presently and I will sue Warner over the rights to it in 10 years time I mean I think this is really I think that's the only way films get made nowadays isn't it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's this like a Warner listening algorithm scraping all podcasts and then like dumping that into AI for ideas. Uh, um, we should uh, we should we should we should talk about this movie because this movie is <laughs> yes we it, should it sure is a movie but you know what's you know what's great about it you know what's genuinely like unironically really good is thirty five millimeter print baby. Uh, oh, that grain! Mm, del- delicious whole grain cinema. Oh, it's so healthy. It's the, the grain is so healthy in this movie. 
like really lovely, lovely opening shot, opening sequence, particularly. Uh, mm, and and just the way the, the the grain dances on on the kind of like windswept Arctic horizon, it's just like I'm watching this and I'm like, is this is this a Herzog document? No, it's just Thirty Days of Night. <laughs> is this is this Herzog? No, it's David Slade, the guy who did Hard Candy. <laughs> uh, Hard Candy, also an extremely good movie, by the way. Yeah, agreed. See our forthcoming hard candy episode as we now uh, round up to episode or round past episode three hundred. Episode three hundred was last week. Can you we're running out of horror it? movies? I don't don't think that's going to be a problem. Are there, but listeners, yeah, let us know in the comments if there are other horror movies there that we haven't discussed. Because now that we've done three hundred and one of them, yeah, we I'm might starting to think there aren't any more. <laughs> yeah. uh, we've reached peak horror movie. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> We gotta go. We gotta go work on the deep sea discourse rig for, for a month. <laughs> oh, okay. Dear. So I have back, back, back to our takes refining processing facility. Yeah, back. To, <laughs> I have. A, I have a kind of a, a sort of broader point, which is that, like, by the time we get to two thousand and seven in cinema history, the question of the vampire, cinematically speaking, is inescapably a question of style agreed um and i guess what that brings up is not just a set of formal aesthetics but the political implications of those aesthetic choices right so i'm kind of curious to know what what do you think you know because we started off by kind of talking about the the grain the 35 millimeter film like this is a this is a surprisingly beautiful film, but what do you think about that aesthetics as a set of like political discourses? So, sidebar: Is there like running water in the background of your audio? Oh yeah, sorry. It's a it's a radiator that I'm next to, which I. Oh no! Yeah, okay. No worries. No worries. I was just like, what is what is that? What am I editing out later? It is. It is hella cold. No, so. it's a. Uh, it's 13 Fahrenheit here today, which is like negative 10 Celsius. Uh, yeah, that's so I'm afraid I'm afraid the, the central heating. Oh, no, no, that's fine. That, that, that adds a certain uh, Victorian ambiance to our <laughs> podcast. Yeah, I you you record from your high tech American <laughs> podcast refining plant. And I'm in like my Victorian garret that's heated with a creaky water boiler. <laughs> oh my god that's that's hilarious because i i do have really high tech heating in this in this new apartment that i'm in so that's cool (laughs) so i i guess so for me for me what i'm getting at with this is like um when it comes to the the question the politics of the style like is there a degree to which this film is necessarily bound up within the discourses of like the romanticizing of the american frontier Oh, right, I, I think because Northern uh, yeah, Alaska yeah. looks beautiful, right? It looks no, beautiful, I agree, and it's like I that's kind of the point, right? I, I think I think this this is this is a very this is a Ansel Adams vampire movie. Yes, this is this is all about the romance and ruggedness of the kind of Western expanse of the United States of America. It's ever shrinking uh, points of rurality, and and this movie is like I mean, like just look at the way they're filming everything about this place right like these you can't help but like look at the direct comparison between like 
the classic photography of Ansel Adams and how 30 days of night was shot. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the other point of comparison is like Westerns, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, a lot of the Westerns that created this image of the American imagination, that created this image of the frontier in the mid-20th century American imagination were not necessarily filmed in America, right? It's a place mm-hmm. that, it, like... It's a place that appears more American than America did, which is why they shot in like Italy or <laughs> they shot in Mexico. And it's like, it's really interesting to me that the, there's a similar thing happening here, which just on the level of style, on the formal level of the aesthetics of the film, you were juxtaposing this kind of hype of this kind of like very timely, very mid 2000s. Stylized hyperviolence with a kind of like quintessential America the Beautiful moment in its formal aesthetics, and and this is this is something that I do find to be fascinating about Thirty Days of Night because we have westerns aren't very violent movies by and large, and and they'll feature a lot of gunplay, a lot of assaults, a lot of violence like that, but we don't, or I should say, they're not very gory pieces of cinema right uh, westerns typically don't linger on the violence the violence just kind of happens and then we move on rapidly to the next violent set piece um and in this movie we're like we're like lingering on all the wounds on these vampires their blood-soaked claws people getting ripped apart like this movie there's like you know like 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 so someone gets their arm ripped off by like a giant like metal shredding machine it's it's almost like saw adjacent. It's very aughts and it's and it's violent depictions, and it is interesting to see that kind of violence laid over, like how America depicts its western frontier, yeah, right? and, and how that again like speaks to like manifest destiny and these founding American mythos that we can kind of always travel forward and homesteading, right? Like oh, everyone gets their plot of land and gets their chance at striking it rich if you decide to become a miner. And then, like, you know, in, in a rare cinematic moment, it's like, no, no, that's just kind of, like, isolated, dark, cold, and blood-soaked. Yeah, and it's like, there's a there's a really revealing line of dialogue right at the beginning where I, someone says, isn't that why we came here? So that we could be free, right? Mm-hmm, yep. The, which we'll get, we'll, we'll, yep. We'll, we'll get more into Bo in, in due course, but I think... The bow zone. We'll... <laughs> <laughs> we'll be we will be overdosing on we'll be doing some serious damage to the bozone layer um it's it's gonna be fine um but yeah there's there's this kind of like discourse of like freedom of like naturalism in the photography combined with like the comic book sensibility of its of its stylized gore which directly constructs this aesthetic of like this is what life is like in these very rural remote parts of america it's both beautiful and bloody in equal measure absolutely and this movie does serve as a good reminder of the underlying mechanisms that 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 kind of constructed appearance of beauty is there to distract us from yes yeah absolutely uh because so much of this frontier is founded upon a kind of larger objective violence right which is the which is the language, which is the, the violence of like imperialism, of colonialism. Oh, absolutely. And even we can turn to projects like the National Parks here in the United States, which do a great job at preserving beautiful land, Yellowstone, Yosemite, Bryce, Bryce, oh my God, Bryce. 
but like and then the, on the other hand like oh they're they're specifically managed against the interests of indigenous peoples well we should this kind of brings up a this kind of brings up a good point which is that uh this is set in barrow um but mm-hmm. barrow does not does not exist anymore so barrow back in 2016 still i mean it still exists but they by by a margin of six votes, the population of the town voted to change its name uh, back to its. Um, I its, believe uh, it's Utkiavik. Utkiavik, yes. So yeah, Barrow no longer exists, right? There's, this is the this is the, the 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 colonialism of language that erases history, um, and mm-hmm. so it's why the restoration of indigenous languages and indigenous indigenous names is very is kind of very good and should be encouraged, but it's like principally the very first step of deconstructing these kind of colonialist narratives that have settled into the very social fabric and geography of a place. Oh, absolutely. One, one, 100%. And that, that is a context that, and this is not, this is a discourse point. This is, I'm foreshadowing again, but when, when we, when we really start to kind of like pick apart the plot of this movie, like I, I think it's interesting to look at all of this movie's depiction of colonialism, uh, you know, gendered violence, violence in regards to oil production, and how that's just all background in this film to what is otherwise like the most stock boilerplate asset swapped love story. Yeah, it's very, it's very, this is very familiar, right? It's very familiar. Um, Hey, kids, do you like Fortnite? I've got a new game called Day Castle. It's a shooter. You're going to love it. Do you like Fortnite? I've got a new game for you. It's called Two Weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for doing doing my joke, but actually good. (laughs) Which is so often the case. (laughs) Um, We should should mention that this is an adaptation. And I'm I'm curious... And you said before we started recording that you had read the original comic books that this is based on. Um, so I'm curious to know what you think about this as, uh, as an adaptation and what you think some of the kind of issues are in adapting kind of very stylized graphic novel comic series to to, to film. So there, there are aspects of this that I think are really successful and there are ab- aspects of this that I think kind of like fall on its face. Because this, the visuals of this movie, right? Like what we're seeing is extremely stylized, right? We, we have a lot of high contrast shots. We have a lot of like beautiful kind of like, it's very painterly. It's very picturesque in how it's shot, right? It, it almost feels like it's off the page of some kind of illustrated work, which that like, but it's also not trying to like mimic the comic too closely it's it's translating it which that stuff i i feel works is very successful um i I haven't read 30 days of night in a minute i did read it like oh my god too long ago much like the vampires in today's film i'm now so old that the slang that i speak just sounds like insects clicking and screeching uh, to most people who are younger than me so i we're we're not going to get into that just yet um but no the and then like so the comic uh, reads like a very, it's like a classic creepy comic, like a monster show. It's so nice. Um, and then when you like kind of watch this, like, I, th- I think there's some struggle to translate that because the kind of like bare minimum plot w- can work really well in a comic because you can communicate things 
I think very effectively with visual still images with each frame of the comic on each page. Like you're, you're given different kinds of artistic freedoms that you don't have in cinema. Like cinema is not a better, more expressive art form. We're just kind of trading techniques here. Hmm. And I think like in terms of translating the plot and translating some kind of like, cause there's like no tension in the story. I don't know. Like I don't feel any tension. Like it's hard to get invested in these characters when it comes to the movie. What are, what are your thoughts on on those those issues? No, I, I agree. I have not read the comic, and I think in, in many ways, like this is why I think style is such an important question to consider in this film, because otherwise, if you go, well, we should f- just focus on the story. Yeah, the story, the, firstly, there's not a whole lot of there. Um, and secondly, I don't think you can separate the style from the story that it's trying to, to restage, because it's not oh, really all not. that original, right? But it's the stylistic distinction that actually gives the film some kind of flavor, as it were. Oh, absolutely. And it's it's not necessarily a bad thing that this, the story is so boilerplate. Like, I watch a lot of rom-coms. Some of them are really good movies. Literally all of them have the exact same plot. Um, And so that's, that's not inherently a downside. But in this film, like, I don't know, the plot just never never really clicked for me never really congealed everything just feels so so stock yeah i mean it, like plot wise it's fine right it's it's this is what i mean when i say the vampire or vampire media is really a question of style it's not really about plot we know what the plot is already um because the plot is always the same when it comes to the vampire so it's it's about the differences or the minor like uh deviations and tweaks that you can make with a certain sense of aesthetic commitment that gives you this um and one of the things that i think is well worth picking up on is con langs what do you mm-hmm. wh- I, I i gotta be honest um i'm not sure that i'm not sure they, they they make a big old swing at it but i'm not sure it really lands for me our new <laughs> vampire language <laughs> it's no klingon that's for sure it is no klingon uh but then few things are <laughs> <laughs> what, what, that's true Elvish, what do you think maybe. what do you think formally about the vampires and maybe the way they communicate so this, this is like another thing that works in adaptation right because like the kind of i see this working so much better on a comic right like the vampires have this strange kind of like clicking screech that they use to talk to each other that feels like a, a comic book idea that could work really well in an environment that doesn't have an audio component but here, like, after a while, it's just like, oh, they're making the same kind of, like, generic screeching sound that a lot of monsters make in monster movies. Like, it doesn't come off as they're a language, right? An ability to communicate with each other. It comes off more as, like, animalistic screeching, which, and then sometimes German, which is weird. But, like, I kind of, like, at a certain point, like... I was like, okay, they're clearly not like the kind of like rage vampire that's just animalistic and driven by its vampire infection to kill. And they're not like the 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 Draculas, right? Or the Cullens of the vampire world where they're very like erudite and sophisticated and blood drinking is this eroticized necessity. They're somewhere in the middle of those two. And I find their little conlang to be an attempt to negotiate their awkward placement as like, because they're very, they're very like a European in vibe, 
you know, and they're they're very like they're they're coded it's as the, being it's kind the of teeth, out of isn't time. It? It's it's the teeth. <laughs> can't, can't believe I have to put up with this. <laughs> no, I was actually I was actually gonna say like like they all they all look like Berlin clubbers. <laughs> yeah, somebody's not getting into Kit Kat. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, like, here's here's the thing that I don't get, right? So they they you I, I completely agree. They're kind of caught between the animalistic and the kind of like erud, er, erudite. Um, mm-hmm. But they have one. They, their vampire leader occasionally gives like little philosophically inflected speeches about God and things like that. Um, usually to someone that the vampire is about to murder. But the amazing thing is these vampires don't speak English. Um, but happily, the film knows what they're saying because they provide subtitles. <laughs> and it's like, you've got this like terrified Alaskan oil worker who's about to have their head turned into ceviche um, going, oh, slow down. I need to read the subtitles to see what it is you've said about God being dead. <laughs> <laughs> right. And like, like again, like this is kind of like this weird scripting thing that happens where it kind of seems like some of the humans understand their vampire language. Yeah, which is which what's it's kind so of confusing. Weird. Yeah, like it, like it doesn't it doesn't like read right some of the time. I I don't know. Like I, I found myself most conflicted with those elements of of this film. Right, like that stuff just did not work very well for me. Uh, do you, any other any other formal points before we dive into some into the long dark night of the soul that is us discoursing <laughs> about vampires? Uh, no, no. I I think I think it's time for thirty days of discourse. Absolutely, and if you would like to uh, help, you would like keep- literally thirty days of discourse, <laughs> and help keep the HV General Store well stocked. Uh, you can do that at horrorvanguard.com, and you can head to our Patreon page, and for just the price of some uh, bear traps, I don't, I don't know. I'm not as good as this bit. <laughs> I'm not very good at this bit compared to Ash. Uh, please go to the Patreon. Please help uh, support the show. Uh, please send us money. It helps us do things like um, afford to keep doing the show. Uh, and if you like it, it's a great way of getting some bonus material. Um, wow, that was a re- that was a bad Patreon plug. I, I thought I thought it was really nice. I thought it was really nice. And and you know, really, like all of our Patreon supporters help prevent you and I from opening up a rural Alaskan diner. <laughs> <laughs> so if if you want to prevent that dark future actually that would that's kind of nice when you think about it that's one of those things where like in I, I like the thought of it in theory it would be really nice but i'm sure in practice that that would be a miserable job I, I, you, you you're pretty correct there i think listeners listeners write in if you own have owned or have worked at a rural alaskan diner <laughs> join us on our new podcast the rural alaskan diner show uh should we talk about some discourse i suppose lead lead the way uh well as as you are the vampiric lord of horror vanguard lead us into this discourse i will i will i i was unable to go to das techno club over the weekend so (laughs) 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 yeah they they wouldn't they wouldn't even let me in the line so so that's okay (laughs) Just turn up and it's like no. <laughs> I'm just I'm just way I'm just too too visibly has been in a library recently and just immediately is turned away. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, we, I think we should start with this question of freedom and the question of the law because 
the mediating character here is Josh Hartnett, who plays the local sheriff. Um, and it's like, what do you think of? I feel like there's a there's a qualitative distinction between a police officer and a sheriff, right? From from an external point of view, and I I'm trying to kind of tease out why that feels different. Hmm. So I think this is I think this is a good place to start off our discourse too, because especially like in in the kind of context of what we've got here, right? In, in the context of this show, we have like the rural sheriff, right? He's literally a sheriff in in what would be a one horse town, right? Mm-hmm. He's he's like the only like cop in the entire town, and like. No, I'm sorry. There's another. He's got. He's got a buddy. He's got his deputy, right? Like all. Like all cops. He's got his homosocial pal. Um. That that they're absolutely heteronormative and in no way have ever had any kind of erotic encounter with. Because why would they do that? Never. Never. The very um, idea. <laughs> no. It's, it's, it's just, just just my my heavens. No. My stars. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So we we have we have this setup, right? And and I think the. For for me, like a key difference between these two things, or a key distinction I would draw, is in how we construct them in the media, mm-hmm. right? Like like cops from a media perspective tend to come from like big cities. Yes, you know you're a tough city cop working the beat, you know, like like or you're a detective or, or private eye or something like like you don't really get that in the kind of like podunk nowhere town. Like that's the sheriff or the ranger. And it fits into the same kind of like manifest destiny media landscape, right? Like these are rugged men on the edge of the law trying to keep a town together where like, I, I don't know, like the rules don't apply. I also think of Benjamin Sisko from DS9 is is the sheriff in the world of Star Trek. Uh, the, the sheriff captains. of space. <laughs> He's a space sheriff. I'm sure that movie has been made by someone. I'm sure there's space sheriff out there. And yeah, I don't know. I think that's that's the beginning of where I would start to kind of like draw some like discursive boundaries around these two. Focusing, I mean, like I'm sure there's a lot of things that we could say materially, but I think like their media and, the, and how we can politicize these aesthetics is is the first like, I don't know, the, the first step up the mountain of discourse that we're currently climbing. Yeah. And I think to kind of push that a bit further, we can talk about its relationship to freedom, right? Because mm-hmm. there's this weird... Uh, kind of interstitial the, the 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 frontier is the point of freedom but it's also the point at which um rights which are social legal and often judicial constructs are kind of meaningless um you have to find ways of kind of enforcing protecting and maintaining those rights and to do that you sort of need the institutions of the state right you sort of need um and you the big one is 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 usually presented as being the the one that's necessary is law. So really, the sheriff is the sheriff is is kind of supposed to be the at the avatar of the law, right? Which is um, slightly different from being an enforcer of the state. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's there's a slight two slightly different and and I think quite important distinction. So it's then you could kind of go okay. So what what is the biggest freedom? That you that the the sheriff is there is supposed to kind of guarantee, and in this the biggest one is like, well, what's the purpose of the sheriff? The sheriff is to try and keep you alive, right? That, that's on on the frontier. Your greatest mm-hmm. right, the greatest freedom that you're supposed to have is just the freedom to live, right? And that's the 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 kind of tension of these frontier spaces is what attracts people, but it's also what very often kills people quite quickly. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think it's worth noting, too, that, like, historically speaking, one of the duties incumbent upon your your rural sheriff, your rural lawman type would be to subdue any indigenous resistance to the settler colonial effort. Yes. Yeah, precisely. Because that's also a freedom, right? The the, the ultimate freedom is is the freedom of the individual to be subsumed into the state. And therefore, if you're if the exercise of your freedom cuts against the priorities of of the colonial estate, then your your innate rights <laughs> get kind of yanked away from you. AKA John Brown did nothing wrong. <laughs> Friend of the podcast, John Brown. Yeah, no, I I think that I think that's a that, that's a good way to kind of like explore this character of the sheriff in the movie. And I also think we're again something we've kind of like visited a, a lot here on Horror Vanguard is why do we have so many you know cops that are protagonists in the horror movie or that are a protagonist rather. It, and I think one of the things we can kind of tease out of that is like. Like, like again, like, what I find to be really interesting in this movie... Oh, my God, there's so much we can get into here. So, so in, the, in, in today's film, Eben, uh, who, who, is, who is not an extraterrestrial being, uh, for my fellow ufologists <laughs> out there, um, and whose name isn't also Evan or Steven, uh, E-B-E-N, is, is, our, is our sheriff, right? And his um, ex-wife, his, his former partner is is the head of the fire department right like you know like and they've like god like this is something i'm still trying to unpick why is this movie coding being a firefighter as like femme like being a firefighter is ladylike and being a sheriff is masculine and that's like a thing that's happening here that i'm like it's the two genders (laughs) it's you can everybody knows you can either be a small town frontier sheriff or you can be a high femme firefighter. <laughs> this is I'm sure I'm sure there's been a conservative out there who's done that bit, but like like what's up, men? Are you tired of being soy beta cucked? Well then you should quit your job as a firefighter. Like who like Yeah, have you not seen those kind of reactionary memes of like the masculine urge to move to Alaska and work on an oil rig? It's like this is what this is the movie. Yeah, this this is the film for them. <laughs> but um yeah, like, like so that's something I'm still trying to pick apart. And we have like their their relationship kind of like mirrored against that. And like, of course, it's it was somehow her actions which which ended their relationship, which is something that the movie is like. Uh, pl- please refrain from considering this for any length of time, audience members. Uh, <laughs> let's let's not let's not dwell on the fact that it's her damn fault that they're not together. And of course, she regrets it. Yeah, I don't know. Like, like that's something that I'm still picking apart because that was like, that was that was a moment in this movie where I'm like, oh, that could actually be a more interesting turn, right? That would have, in a way, been a more interesting film. Is like, oh, what if like, you know, kill off the sheriff in your little town like immediately, and then just kind of leave me with the, uh, leave leave me with like the the sheriff's assistant trying to like. Pull, pull, or not the sheriff's assistant, rather, but the firefighter trying to like pull everything together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think this brings up the kind of wider uh, context, the wider socio-political context of this film, uh, which we've kind of been skirting around a little bit. I think we have to kind of talk about <laughs> vampire petro culture. I weird. This is the discourse activated. The the petro vampiric. 
Um, basically, what we're doing here is we're doing the goth version of How to Blow Up a Pipeline by Andreas Malm. <laughs> Andreas Malm. And this is like an always sunny bit. Andreas Malm directs a vampire movie. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, to, to cover up their, um, you know, basically turning an entire town of Alaskans into charcuterie, um, the vampires decide to attack the pipeline that runs through the town. Um, with the aim of burning the entire town down to the ground. This is two thousand. This is two thousand seven, right? We are in the middle of um, George W. Bush's infamous surge policy in Iraq. Um, I'm like, there's something so striking about having what what basically appears to be like this almost guerrilla insurgent force of animalistic blood crazed murderers wanting to destroy your precious oil pipeline. And this is, this is like, again, like I said, what I was saying earlier in the formalism zone, 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 zone about the, um, yeah, I haven't used that drop in a minute audience. And, and you know what, you know what, no one, no one ever mentions that. No one mentions when I do or do not use the formalism zone, the discourse zone, it's just, I feel like I just do it for me. I don't know. I feel like I'm talking to myself right now. I feel like the darkness is, my tunnel vision's getting worse. The darkness is clouding in. I'm feeling cold. Uh, uh, why, are, why are my grandchildren gathered around this bed? John, John, can you hear me? Skype is disconnecting again. Oh, no, but my- <laughs> oh that got real fast. Ooh, ouch. I got you, frostbite okay? off that one. Are you okay? you <laughs> okay? I don't think so, <laughs> but you know what will make me okay? Um, so, so the oil, I think, is really interesting because this movie... So the oil in this movie, one, is the reason why everyone's in this town, even if they have other reasons to, to be there, right? You know, we have the woman who runs the diner. We have um, the guy who has the helicopters talking about his tourism trade. Yep. But ostensibly, all of this is built on the back of oil, right? Like, it's it's every everyone's little economy is, is built on the fact that this is like an oil refining town or an oil... Or at least as like an important sector for transiting this oil pipeline that a town can kind of accrete around it. And like this doesn't really come up in the movie until the vampires decide to burn down the town by slashing into the pipeline and flooding the town with crude oil. Yeah, for for reasons which I, the their leader who is too busy talking about um his undergraduate class in Nietzsche um doesn't really <laughs> sort of explain uh, all this very well. Oh yeah, like when 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 the when the head vampire like slashes into the pipeline and says, "Thus spake Zarathustra," I was like, <laughs> "What?" I don't really, I don't really. And then, and then, like when you know, when he when he goes to to fight the sheriff who turns into a vampire at the end, and he's he says, "Looks like it's Ubermensch against Ubermensch." I was like, "I don't think you really read that." <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, this this kind of backs up with what I was saying, right? The only way of um, safeguarding your so. I, I, I mentioned Chomsky in our notes, and I think Chomsky takes a lot of uh, flack. Uh, but, like, the, the thing that I've always found kind of weird about Chomsky is that geopolitics gets very reductive if you kind of just follow his analysis in a relatively straightforward fashion. So, like, a lot of American imperialism basically just comes down to where oil pipelines are, which is not, like, wrong, but it's probably a little oversimplified. <laughs> so Just, just it, a bit, just a bit. It, I think it says something quite interesting that like this in the midst of in the midst of the deadliest year um 
for Iraq, for the, it, the deadliest year of the Iraq war, 2007, where, where I think like almost a thousand US soldiers were killed, to have this essentially vampire petro culture film drop. Um, and the only way in which your uh, sheriff, who becomes a kind of soldier of defending the weak, can beat them is through like essentially taking on the literal blood violence of these supernatural terrorists before like self-immolating in a ma- in an act of like you know Girardian sacrifice and and, and this this again I think speaks to like the figure of the sheriff they are a bit more self-sacrificing in media than your standard like your standard issue cop would be but again that 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 facilitates like like a a very conservative media depiction of what the sheriff's position is right oh like if you become a law enforcement officer in quotes you're sacrificing yourself for the community yeah exactly exactly um and i guess i'm just kind of curious am i sort of wildly off base here then with by by linking this film to the iraq war (laughs) No, no, I think you're spot on. Like, like, it works with when this movie is coming out, too. This, this movie is coming out, like, a good number of years after the Iraq War starts. And this is this would be about the time when people are finally starting to go, like, oh, like, that that shit was horrible. This is on the heels of the Occupy movement. Like, and, and when, like, even, like, American media culture is starting to come around to the Iraq War having been a very bad idea. Yeah, which decent people were saying since it started. Um. Yeah. What What are you, What are your thoughts then? What do you th- What do you think about the the interaction here? Of I would be really curious to know if there are other films that we could include in this like Venn diagram of movies about oil pipelines and movies about vampires. <laughs> you know what? You know what? This is this feels like a horror vanguard project. I am I am very confident that we can like mix and match and rematch the rematch while remix these things so i think one like your your appraisal of chomsky i think is very very accurate you know like like there are a lot of things a lot of bones i would pick with chomsky's discourse over the years god knows like who has written more books than chomsky short of like i don't know zizek or something but like it is it is reductionist to to just be like oh here's where oil is going but at the same time we can start to draw like these these bizarre similarities to to places whose entire economy is kind of enslaved to global oil production. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, like we, Ecuador, Aberdeen, uh, nowhere Alaska, right? Anchorage, like I mean, Anchorage is not nowhere near Alaska. Anchorage listeners, do not come for me in the comments um, of your fine and beautiful city, <laughs> <laughs> which isn't isn't totally as as bound up in oil as other other smaller communities further north. But I think like this movie leaves that underexamined, right? Oil is is again, it's just background noise to this film. It's not really like too strongly in the discursive foreground, which is where it needs to be to really do more than have just a stock plot. Instead, we get quite a lot of focus on sketched characters who are all types, right? They're all playing figures. Um Maybe we can talk a little bit about the community of Barrow in this film, then. And I know specifically you wanted to talk about Bo. So yeah, let's, let's talk about Bo. So Bo, uh, we meet we meet, we meet Bo early on in the film, um, and 
he has an exchange with our with our our small town sheriff. We're in Bo. Uh, his car is leaking oil, and the the sheriff is like, "Oh, I'm gonna have to write you up for that. You're gonna get a ticket for I believe for that's having called foreshadowing." <laughs> <laughs> It it does weirdly foreshadow the moment when all the vampires uh, start doing like technocratic legalese to take over the town. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> a real left field move by the film. Um, no, but like so, so he gives him the ticket, and then like Bo Bo's kind of like didn't didn't we all move out here to get away from that? Yeah, we like, we like moved to, out here to be free. And then the the sheriff gets back in his car, and his little sheriff's assistant buddy, who is like like in an interesting casting moment, our sheriff is kind of twinkish. And and his deputy in in a, in a role reversal is like this kind of like grisly manly type, and and I'm like I'm like oh this is a good this is a good switch up you know yeah, Sher- yeah. Sheriff Twink and Deputy Bear roll into town. <laughs> um, no, but like and then his his deputy is like, why'd you do that? Bo's a good guy, you know he doesn't need to be getting those tickets. And and the sheriff says a line which I think is really telling. He says. Oh, I, I gave him that ticket to remind him that he's a member of our community. You know, like, it, it, and I'm like, that's like, like, sure, I could, I could easily imagine a figure like Bo living on the outskirts of the community and feeling, you know, like disassociated from everybody who would be, you know, like minded friends and colleagues of him. But like, is that. Is that really how we feel? Is that, is that really how we're going to bring Bo in, in, into community with these people? Is, is, to, is to strap what can't be a good economic situation for this guy driving a junker truck through nowhere Alaska? And like, I'm like, this, this kind of speaks to a tone in, in this movie that's very technocratic, that's very neoliberal. Because of course, of course our sheriff would know the best way to bring someone in the community. And of course it would be through administrating fines and paperwork. Uh, welcome, everybody, to Alaskan Altazarian Interpolation. Um, so this, is, <laughs> this is exactly what this is, right? So Althusser, famous French Marxist of the 60s and 70s, writes a very famous essay on ideology. And he talks about this idea of how do you make... Or how do you induct someone into the sphere of ideology? And his kind of thesis is about this process that he termed in interpolation. Um, so it's the way in which you he call he, he the the example he gave, gives is like um, ideological hailing. So like if a police officer stops you and goes, "Hey, you, you have been like you have suddenly become a subject who is identifiable to the law." Right, because what the sheriff is doing is is ideological interpolation, like by what is it that Althusser says? Um, the individual is is interpolated as a free subject that he shall freely submit to the commandments of the capital S subject, i.e., in order that he shall freely abs- accept his subjugation. Right, this is what this mm-hmm. is. Right, freedom, the freedom to be left alone doesn't matter. Right, you have freedom now because you have been hailed as this ideological subject that is thus subject under the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, David Slade is an Althusserian Marxist. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! You know how much better this movie would have been if it ended with like. A, a very esoteric and very niche intra left theoretical debate between a clicking, screeching Berlin clubber vampire lord <laughs> and, 
and and a freshly turned rugged American settler sheriff. Like like really really what I'm saying is like why why aren't you and I consulting on the plots of movies because we'd make something so much more interesting. Absolutely. No no stock plots with us. Absolutely. I mean, uh, where else are you going to go? Yeah, this va- hmm, this vampire is very Althusserian. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. And and again, like like I think that's 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 such a solid like a- angle from which to approach this and, and and way way of exploring things here, right? Because like one of the things that kind of struck me about this movie rewatching it uh just a few days ago was that the sheriff is kind of like immutably correct all the time. Yeah, like he he just makes a series of right decisions that only get more correct as he gets better information, which is the most like neoliberal technocratic thing. Oh, we don't have a problem with climate. We have an information problem. Yeah, absolutely. There's just just a shortage of data right now. There's not actually a problem with the world as is because the great threat to the town. Right. If you take the town as is to be in microcosm america the great threat is less the externalized enemy because you can meet them with a kind of almost divinely approved violence that's fine you don't have to ethically worry about it um the great threat of course would be the ideological crisis when the institutions of law themselves lose their legitimacy when when the police officer says hey you and nobody turns around because you realize the police don't have any power here Ooh, ooh, that's a really good point and the movie, the movie definitely buckles under the weight of like, again, like this is another movie where I'm like, why wasn't the firefighter our protagonist? Yeah. Wouldn't that be such a, um, such a more compelling way to confront and explore this issue would be from that particular set of social tool, tool sets rather than just another fucking sheriff who's like, oh, it's time for unilateral violence. That'll solve this problem. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, like I say, it's like, it's about leg- legit- legitimizing. It's about legitimizing the state, right? And so you get someone who can do this kind of extrajudicial violence, is but is still the incarnation of the law. And then at the end, they have to kind of like self-immolate. Ooh, I like I like that I like that point. I, I think that's very sound. Uh, yeah, do you want to do you want to? Oh, go go on go on. What go do you think about the ending? I was I was literally about to ask you. What do you think about self-immolation? Weirdly, the ending very much remind me of. Uh, Midnight Mass, because Midnight Mass Ooh. ends in almost exactly the same way. <laughs> Self-immolation is an interesting question to explore, both intra the condition of the vampire as well as within like a larger political context, right? Because intra the condition of the vampire, like you were saying, like there are a lot of a lot of vampires kill themselves through self-immolation, right? That's that's the we this goes right back to Varney the vampire's suicide attempts, right? The the vampire as a figure is kind of beguiled with having human feelings and a, a demonic soul if you will mm-hmm. right there, there's kind of a like a a kantian dualism fight within the vampire right their their bodily urges resisted by some kind of higher faculty and then we've got like the political context we're like so you really can't talk about self-immolation in a political context without talking about and like listeners please forgive this pronunciation but teak uh conduct uh who was that uh, buddhist buddhist priest who famously immolated himself and in in a, in a moment of like iconic political resistance, right? We, which has been done before and has been done after, and so we 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 can't help but then be like, okay, this move this movie is trying to like code our sheriff as as a political martyr, 
right? As someone as someone sacrificing his body for the sake of some greater political goal. And in well, this case, the political goal is the sanctity of a pipeline. Well, I think you you can't think about it politically, but of course, self-immolation and self-sacrifice. You used you used the term martyr. That's a religious term. Yes. Right. So it mm-hmm. isn't it isn't simply politics. It's a political theology. Um, or uh, oh, brilliant. So, and really, like it's it's done in the name of love, right? His ex partner is there, right? When he mm-hmm. burns away to ash, but that's that's the you know love is the ultimate kind of like uh, justification for you know d- the defense of the family, right? That's that's your great justification for any sort of violence against the outsider. You know, think of the children. Um, but you're right it's completely connected to the to the geopolitics but also it's given this kind of like theological gloss as a way of going yeah but you might think don't look at the don't look at the burning pipeline behind him <laughs> look at the, right, right. look at his beautiful former partner that he's reconciled to even in death and 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 so so there's kind of two things i want to unpack there and and the first is our sheriff isn't the only martyr in this film. The oil is also martyred. Correct. What happens to the oil mirrors what happens to him. It is it is sacrificed in flames. You know, like so. So we have to we have to mirror these. We have to like look at them together. And I think that that makes it a very grim ending. And especially when we kind of like look at the layer of what's going on with this kind of like I, I don't know his his ex girlfriend, right? Like, what makes her come around? to being with him in the end it's not the quality of his character it's not them resolving whatever conflict drew them apart in the first place which which the movie is super vague about and doesn't really care to dwell much time on like their interpersonal conflict is taken as given they broke up for reasons and they'll the who knows like the movie's not super concerned with these issues but like it's it's her being in this like I, I, shivering, freezing cold, surrounded by burning petrochemicals and Berlin clubber vampires, uh, 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 cradling a blood-soaked child. You know, it's it's intense psychological trauma, fear, and isolation that drives her to be like, we should have stayed together. You know, because because her shitty relationship with him, by contrast, is some kind of safe haven to moor her ship. Yeah, you you've and, got this, and of course you've got like the the child as the 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 third point, the mediating mm-hmm. structure between them. Does this child even really talk? No, because they don't need to, right? They serve their function symbolically, right? As the 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 kind of the the stitch that re uh, sutures the, the the sort of emotional libidinal fabric between the two of them. Yes, and this is this is her returning to this movie is like deeply patricentric. Oh, it's right? very because patriarchal. It's, it's very patriarchal. Yeah, it's, he, he has to sacrifice himself as as to to evoke a conversation we had about a, a previous holiday movie. You know, he's he's the shepherd protecting his flock, as it were. And and what does she do? Like, I don't know. She's she's resorted to to trembling and fear as she cradles a child, even though like firefighters are incredibly heroic and selfless. The movie doesn't play on those angles at all. It just reduces her to being like a surrogate mother figure at some point. Yeah, I mean, there's there's the bit where he finds out that the um, the other man has like killed his family, mm-hmm. and he, he's like he attack he attacks the guy, even even attacks him, and it's like you you're never supposed to hurt your family, and it's mm-hmm. like oh so we have the kind of benign patriarch, right? Mm-hmm. 
right? Your all of all of your violence can be directed outwards as long as it's never directed against these people who are your justification for doing violence. <laughs> Although you can do a ton of violence to them as long as it's like under the proper context, because like what is the the end the end shot of the movie? We've we've I think appropriately focalized his self immolation, but I think like. We, we should, you know, he's not alone at the end of this movie. And in fact, like when I was watching this, I remembered him being alone when mm. he self-immolated. And I think it's really telling that like my memory kind of like whittled the movie down to that because he's being cradled by his ex-girlfriend there at the end of the film as he's burning to death under the rising sun. And her, what, what, what is she doing? Oh, wait a minute. It's invisibilized domestic labor. She is tending to the erratic and violent impulses of her patriarchal lover uh while being totally unrecognized for those acts right she is also i I would argue almost like a deeper martyrdom and a deeper sacrifice is being made there at the end and it involves like her internalities under a larger oppressive system a super point any 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 final thoughts um Oil's bad. Uh, Should probably de- do something about that. I'm I'm for degrowth vampirism. <laughs> degrowth. I'm a degrowth vampire. They're basic. They are. I mean, come on. Yeah, I mean, these vampires seem pretty cool when you think about it that way. They're they're going to these really elite clubs that I don't even know what goes on inside, and you know they're they're against oil oil production. Really, I think I think we've missed it. We missed it the whole time that we should become clicking screeching clubber vampires who are into degrowth. <laughs> and then some like sick techno drops here as we cut (laughs) we hope you've enjoyed the dread discourse until next week stay spooky